Pantry Studio Production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. It's a beautiful home with class, character, and in a nice neighborhood. It's the kind of place where your kids are safe and letting them outside to play is of no more concern to you than turning on the big screen TV, radio, or computer. After all, what could go wrong? When we think of hauntings, we usually think of ghosts. The spirits of those who may have long since departed this world for one reason or another, or in the worst of cases, something like the alleged hauntings of 112 Ocean Avenue. You probably know that one better as Amityville in New York. Oh, but hauntings, like homes, can apparently come in all types, shapes, and sizes. Probably shouldn't have asked that question. You know, what could go wrong? Oh, well, that would be much. As the old saying says, if it seems too good to be true, then it probably is. It was a warm summer night in June of 2014 when a man, a man named Derek Broadus, had just finished an evening of painting at his new home at 657 Boulevard, Westfield, New Jersey. A beautiful six-bedroom home, a dream home that the Broadus family had set their minds, hearts, and almost all of their money into. The sun had set and night had paid a visit when he went outside to check the mail. Derek and his wife Maria had closed the deal on the dream home only three days earlier and were doing some renovations before they moved in. So there wasn't much in the mailbox except for a few bills and a single white card-shaped envelope. It was addressed in thick, clunky handwriting to the new owner. That's all it said. And the typed note inside began nicely enough. Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. Oh, but those warm and kind feelings would soon be replaced by a terror that would be the material of nightmares, and soon, nightmares that usually only come in the sleeping hours would be something they'd have to deal with full time. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is Episode 9, The Mountain Mystery of the Watcher at 657 Boulevard. I will be the last to fall. Shed a tear for them to see There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, 
and those who have seemingly vanished. They are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan. I'd like to give a stupendously large thank you and welcome to our newest Patreon subscribers. Yanni Burton, Mackenzie Banks, Stephen Stepp, and Marie Lovelace. You now get early access to all of the Mountain Mysteries episodes before anyone else, plus you'll be eligible to win some really great prizes. Thank you so much for your support. You have no idea how much it means to keeping the lights on and things going here at the Pantry Studios so we can continue to produce the Mountain Mysteries. For the Broadduses, buying 657 Boulevard had fulfilled a dream. Maria was raised in Westfield, and the house was only a few blocks from her childhood home. Derek grew up in a working-class family that lived in Maine, then moved his way up the ladder through hard work, dedication, and devotion at an insurance company in Manhattan to become a senior vice president with a salary that was large enough to afford the then-priced $1.3 million house. The Broadduses had bought 657 Boulevard just after Derek celebrated his 40th birthday, and their three kids were already debating which of the house's fireplaces Santa Claus would use. But, as Derek kept reading the letter from his new neighbor, whomever it was, the mysterious author took a turn. The writer of the letter asked, How did you end up here? Did 657 Boulevard call you with its force within? 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. The author's scouting had evidently already started. The letter identified the Broadus Honda minivan, as well as the workers renovating the home. I see that you have already flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. The person wrote, Tisk, tisk, tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. Earlier in the week, Derek and Maria had gone to the house and chatted with their new neighbors while their children, who were five, eight, and ten years old, ran around the backyard with several kids from the neighborhood. The writer of the letter seemed to have noticed. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I've counted. The anonymous correspondent wrote, before asking if there were more on the way. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed that bring me your children? Once I know their names, 
I will call to them and draw them to me. The envelope had no return address. Who am I? The individual wrote. There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look out of any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all of the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. The letter concluded with a suggestion that this message would not be the last. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. It was followed by a signature typed in a cursive font. Signed, The Watcher. It was after 10 p.m., and Derek Broadus was alone. He raced around the house, turning off lights so no one could see inside. Then called the Westfield Police Department. An officer came to the house, read the letter, and said, What the fuck is this? He asked Derek if he had enemies and recommended moving a piece of construction equipment from the back porch in case the watcher tried to toss it through a window. Derek rushed back to his wife and kids who were living at their old home elsewhere in Westfield. That night, Derek and Maria wrote an email to John and Andrea Woods, the couple who sold them 657 Boulevard, to ask if they had any idea who the watcher might be or why he or she had written. I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looked like they listened. Andrea Woods replied the next morning. A few days before moving out, the Woodses had also received a letter from the Watcher. The note had been odd, she said, and made similar mention of the Watcher's family observing the house over time. But Andrea said, She and her husband had never received anything like it in their 23 years in the house and had thrown the letter away without much thought. That day, the Woodses went with Maria to the police station, where Detective Leonard Lugo told her not to tell anyone about the letters, including her new neighbors, most of whom she had never met, and all of whom were now suspects. The Broadduses spent the coming weeks on high alert, Derek canceled a work trip, and whenever Maria took the kids to their new house, she would yell their names if they wandered into a corner of the yard. When Derek gave a tour of the renovation to a couple on the block, he froze when his wife said, It'll be nice to have some young blood in the neighborhood. The Broaddus's general contractor arrived one morning to find that a heavy sign he'd hammered into the front yard had been ripped out overnight. Two weeks after the letter arrived, Maria stopped by the house to look at some paint samples and check the mail. She recognized the thick black lettering on a card-shaped envelope and called the police. Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard, the watcher wrote. The workers have been busy, and I have been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster is a nice touch. Have they found what is in the walls yet? In time, they will. This time, the Watcher had addressed Derek and Maria directly, misspelling their names as Mr. and Mrs. Braddis 
instead of Broadus. Had the Watcher been close enough to hear one of the Broadus' contractors addressing them? The Watcher boasted of having learned a lot about the family in the preceding weeks, especially about their children. The letter identified the Broadus' three kids by birth order and their nicknames, the ones Maria had been yelling. I am pleased to know your names now and the names of the young blood you have brought to me, it said. You certainly say their names often. The letter asked about one child in particular, whom the writer had seen using an easel inside an enclosed porch. The letter asked if she was the artist of the family, and then continued, 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I will know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then, I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the Watcher, and I have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job. My life. My obsession. And now you are too, Brodus family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard. And now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I'll be watching. Derek and Maria stopped bringing their kids to the house. They were no longer sure when or if they would move in. Several weeks later, a third letter arrived. Where have you gone to? The watcher wrote. 657 Boulevard is missing you. Many Westfield residents compare their town to Mayberry, the idyllic setting for the Andy Griffith Show, the kind of place where a new neighbor might greet you with a welcoming message. Westfield is about 45 minutes from New York, 
and a bit too slow for singles. Meaning, the town's 30,000 residents are largely well-to-do families. That year, Bloomberg ranked Westfield the 99th richest city in America, but only the 18th wealthiest in New Jersey. And in 2014, when the watcher struck, the website Neighborhood Scout named it to the country's 30th safest towns. The most pressing local issues of late, according to residents, had been the temporary closure of Trader Joe's after a roof collapsed and the rampant scourge of unconstitutional policing, by which they mean aggressive parking enforcement. Westfield is 86% white. One activity all locals recognized as treacherous is trying to buy a house. One resident said that there's a lot of money and ego there. He requested anonymity before discussing Westfield real estate. He said that he's seen bidding wars where friends lost by $300,000. The Broadus' house was on the boulevard, a wide tree-lined street with some of the more desirable homes in town. As the watcher had noted, The boulevard used to be the street to live on. You made it if you lived on the boulevard. Built in 1905, 657 Boulevard was perhaps the finest home on the block. And when the Woodses put it on the market, they had received multiple offers above their asking price. That led the Broadduses to initially suspect that the watcher might be someone upset over losing out on the house. But the Woodses said that one interested buyer had backed out after a bad medical diagnosis, while another one had already found a different home. In an email to the Broadduses, Andrea Woods proposed another theory. Would the mention of the contractor trucks and your children suggest that it was someone in the neighborhood? The letters did indicate proximity. They had been processed in Kearney, the U.S. Postal Service's distribution center in northern New Jersey. The first was postmarked June 4th, before the sale was public. The Woodses had never put up a for sale sign, and only a day after the contractors arrived. The renovations were mostly interior, and people who lived nearby say they didn't notice any unusual commotion, even from the jackhammering in the basement. When Derek and Maria walked Detective Lugo around the house, they showed him that the easel on the porch was hidden from the street by vegetation, making it difficult to see unless someone was behind the house or right next door. A few days after the first letter, Maria and Derek went to a barbecue across the street, welcoming them and another new homeowner to the block. The Broadduses hadn't told anyone about the Watcher, as the police had instructed, and found themselves scanning the party for clues while keeping tabs on their kids, who ran guidelessly through a crowd that was made up of much of the suspect pool. Maria said that they kept screaming at their kids to stay close, 
people must have thought they were crazy. At one point, Derek was chatting with John Schmidt, who lived two doors down when Schmidt told him about the Langfords, who lived between them. Peggy Langford was in her 90s, and several of her adult children, all in their 60s, lived with her. The family was a bit odd, Schmidt said, but harmless. He described one of the younger Langfords, Michael, who didn't work and had a beard like Ernest Hemingway as kind of a Boo Radley character. Derek thought the case was solved. The Langford house was right next to the easel on the porch. The family had lived there since the 1960s, when the watcher's father, the letters said, had begun observing 657 Boulevard. Richard Langford, the family patriarch, had died 12 years earlier, and the current watcher claimed to have been on the job for the better part of two decades. When the Broadduses told Lugo about the family, he said he already knew, and a week after the first letter arrived, he brought Michael Langford to police headquarters for an interview. Michael denied knowing anything about the letters, but the Broadduses say that Lugo told him that, quote, the narrative, end quote, of what he said matched things mentioned in the letters. This isn't CSI Westfield, Lugo later told the Broadduses. When the wife is dead, it's the husband. When there wasn't much hard evidence and after a few weeks, the police chief told the Broadduses that, short of an admission, there wasn't much the department could do. This is someone who threatened my kids, and the police are saying, probably nothing's going to happen, Derek said probably isn't good enough for me. After the second letter, Derek told the cops that if they didn't take care of the situation, they would have a different kind of case on their hands. This person attacked my family, and where I'm from, if you do that, you get your ass beat, Derek told them. Frustrated, the Broadduses began their own investigation. Derek became especially obsessed. He set up webcams in 657 Boulevard and spent nights crouched in the dark watching to see if anyone was watching the house at close range. He said his wife Maria thought he was crazy. He had also said that recently at a coffee shop in Manhattan, where he covered a table with documents relating to the case, including copies of the letters, which he and his wife had shared with only a few friends and family members. He showed a map displaying when each of 657's neighbors had moved in. The Langfords were the only ones there since the 60s, with overlays marking one possible sight line for the easel and a circle for approximate range of earshot to estimate who might have heard Maria yelling their kids' names. Only a few homes fit both criteria. The Broadduses also turned to several experts. They employed a private investigator who staked out the neighborhood and ran background checks on the Langfords, but didn't find anything noteworthy. Derek reached out to a former FBI agent who served as the inspiration for Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. They were on a high school board of trustees together, and they also hired Robert Lenhan, another former FBI agent, to conduct a threat assessment. Lenhan recognized several old-fashioned ticks in the letters that pointed to an older writer. The envelope was addressed to M slash M 
brought us. The salutations included the day's weather, warm and humid, sunny and cool for a summer day, and the sentences had double spaces between them. The letters had a certain literary panache, which suggested a voracious reader, and a surprising lack of profanity given the level of anger which Linehan thought meant a less macho writer. Maybe, he wondered. The Watcher had seen the film entitled The Watcher starring Keanu Reeves as a serial killer who stalks the detective trying to catch him. Linehan didn't think the Watcher was likely to act on the threats, but the letters had enough typos and errors to imply a certain erraticism. The first letter was dated Tuesday, June 4th, but that day was a Wednesday. There was also a seething anger directed at the wealthy in particular. The Watcher was upset by new money moving into town. Are you one of those Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield? and the Broadus's relatively modest renovations. The house is crying from all the pain it is going through. You've changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard, when I ran from room to room imagining the life of its rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old, and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day the young blood will be mine again. Linehan recommends looking into former housekeepers or their descendants. Perhaps the watcher was jealous that the Broadduses had bought a home that the writer could not afford. But the focus remained on the Langfords, in cooperation with Westfield Police. The Broadduses sent a letter to the Langfords announcing plans to tear down the house, hoping to prompt a response. But nothing ever happened. Detective Lugo brought Michael Langford in for a second interview but got nowhere. And his sister, Abby, accused the police of harassing their family. Eventually, the Broadduses hired Lee Levitt, a lawyer, who met with several members of the Langford family as well as their attorney to show them the letters along with photos explaining how their home was one of the few vantage points from which the easel could be seen. The meeting grew tense. Levitt said, and the Langfords insisted Michael was innocent. One night, Derek had a dream in which he confronted Peggy, the oldest Langford, and demanded she build an eight-foot fence between the properties. Marie was having other kinds of dreams. Oh, one night, she woke up to an especially vivid one about a man who lived nearby. She said that he was wearing these boots and carrying a pitchfork and calling to the kids, and she said, I couldn't get to them in time. She thought almost anyone could be the watcher which made daily life feel like navigating a labyrinth of threats. She probed the faces of shoppers at Trader Joe's to see if they looked strangely at her kids and spent hours Googling anyone who seemed suspicious. There were reasons to consider other suspects. For one thing, the police spoke to Michael before the second letter was sent. 
which would make sending two more especially reckless. It brought us to say that Lugo told them that they wouldn't receive any more letters after he spoke to Michael. Then, there was the rest of the neighborhood to consider. Well, the private investigator found two child sex offenders within a few blocks. Bill Woodward, the Broadus's house painter, had also noticed something strange. The couple behind 657 Boulevard kept a pair of lawn chairs strangely close to the Broadus's property. One day, I was looking out of the window and saw this older guy sitting in one of those chairs, Woodward had said. He wasn't facing his house. He was facing the Broadus's. But by the end of 2014, the investigation had stalled. The watcher had left no digital trail, no fingerprints, and no way to place someone at the scene of a crime that could have been hatched from pretty much any mailbox in northern New Jersey. The letters could be read closely for possible clues or dismissed as nonsensical ramblings of a sociopath. It was like trying to find a needle in a haystack, said Scott Krauss, who helped investigate the case for the Union County Prosecutor's Office. In December, the Westfield Police told the Broadduses they had run out of options. Derek showed the letters to his priest, who agreed to bless the house. Renovations to 657 Boulevard, including a new alarm system, were finished within only a few months. But the idea of moving in filled the Broadduses with overwhelming anxiety. Could they let their kids play outside or have friends over? Would they get a new letter every week? Derek priced out trained German shepherds and posted a job on a website for military veterans. All you have to do is work out in the backyard every day. But the Broadduses hadn't bought 657 to fill bunkered in a fortress. At the end of the day, it came down to, what are you willing to risk, Maria told him. We weren't going to put our kids in harm's way. Derek had been responding to occasional alarms at the house, sometimes in the middle of the night bringing a knife with him just in case. They were so joyous about their new home, and then within days, they were petrified. That's what Bill Woodward, the painter, had said. I'm a stranger, and Maria was crying and shaking in my arms. It didn't help that the watchers seemed to be getting more and more unhinged. 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It's coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient. And wait for this to pass, and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. We'll let the young blood play again like I once did. 
Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. The Broadduses had sold their old home, so they moved in with Maria's parents while continuing to pay the mortgage and property taxes on 657 Boulevard. Derek said that he had to do things like shovel the driveway. Just picture that little indignity. He said that he'd go at five in the morning, then come back and do it again at his in-laws. They told only a handful of friends about the letters, which left others to ask why they weren't moving in. Legal issues, they said, and wonder if they were getting divorced. They fought constantly and started taking medication to fall asleep. Derek said that he was a depressed wreck. Maria decided to see a therapist after a routine doctor's visit that began with a question, How are you? That question made her burst into tears. The therapist said that she was suffering post-traumatic stress that would not go away until they got rid of that house. Six months after the letters arrived, the Broadduses decided to sell 657 Boulevard. They initially listed it for more than what they paid to reflect the renovations they'd done. But few worlds are more gossipy than suburban New Jersey real estate. And rumors had already begun to swirl about why the house sat empty. One broker emailed to say her client loved it, but that there are so many unsubstantiated rumors flying around, ranging from sexual predator to stalker, and that they wanted to know more. The Broadduses sent a partial disclosure mentioning the letters to interested buyers and told Coldwell Banker, their realtor, that they intended to show the full letters to anyone whose offer was accepted. Several preliminary bids came in well below the asking price, but the Broadduses weren't ready to take such a financial hit and only wanted to share the letters with likely buyers. No one got that far, even after they lowered the price. A Coldwell agent, who hadn't read the letters, told them in an email that they were being unnecessarily forthcoming. One said, quote, My friend got a horrible threatening letter about her dog barking and she didn't think to disclose. But the Broadduses insisted, I don't know how you lived through what we did and think that you could do it to somebody else, Derek said. Derek and Maria thought about what they would have done had the previous owners told them about their letter from the Watcher. The Woodses, both retired scientists, told the Broadduses that they remembered the letter they received as more strange than threatening, thanking them for taking care of the house. They said they never had any issues, and that they certainly never felt watched, Andrea told them. They rarely even locked the doors. But the Broadduses felt the name alone was ominous enough to merit mentioning to a new family moving in. And on June 2nd, 2015, a year after buying 657 Boulevard, they filed a legal complaint against the Woodses, arguing that the Woodses should have disclosed the letter just as they had about the fact that water sometimes got in the basement. The Broadduses said that they hoped to reach a quiet settlement. Their kids still didn't know about the Watcher, and their lawyer assured them that, at most, a small legal newswire might pick up the story. Tamron Hall said that they do some creepy stories. Tamron is on the Today Show. 
said that a few weeks later. They also went on to say that this might be top 10 creepy. A local reporter had found the complaint which included snippets of the watcher's menacing threats and after a belated attempt by the Broadduses to seal it, the story went viral. News trucks camped out at 657 Boulevard and one local reporter set up a lawn chair to conduct his own watch. The Broadduses got more than 300 media requests but with advice from a crisis management consultant referred by one of the Derrick's colleagues, they decided not to speak publicly to spare their kids even more attention. They vacated Westfield and went to a friend's house. They didn't find much peace there either. Maria's grandfather had a heart attack and the friend they were staying with had a grand mal seizure. Eventually, Derek and Maria sat down with their children to explain the real reason they hadn't moved into their home. The kids had plenty of questions. Who is the watcher? Where does this person live? Why is this person angry with us? To which Derek and Maria had few answers. Can you imagine having that conversation with a five-year-old? Derek said. Your town isn't as safe as you think it is. And then there's the boogeyman obsessed with you. From a safer distance, the watcher was a real-life mystery to solve. A commentator on NJ.com suggested ground-penetrating radar to find whatever the watcher claimed was in the halls. The home inspector had already looked and told Derek the only issue was the aging home's lack of insulation. A group of Reddit users obsessed over Google Maps Street View which showed a parked car in front of 657 that one user thought had a man holding a camera in the driver's seat. Others more rationally saw pixelated glare. The range of proposed suspects included a jilted mistress, a spurned realtor, a local high schooler's creative writing project, guerrilla marketing for a horror movie, and mall goths having fun. Some people just thought the Broadduses were wimps for not moving in. One person said, I would never let this sicko stop me from moving into a house, never back down from a terrorist, which irked the Broadduses. None of them have read the letters or had their children threatened by someone they didn't know, Derek said. To decide whether this person's only nuts enough to write these letters and not do something, well, what if something did happen? In Westfield, people were on edge. Laurie Clancy, who teaches piano lessons in her house behind 657 Boulevard, had said that one of her students came for a lesson shortly after the news of the watcher broke and started bawling. She was terrified to walk down the boulevard, Clancy said. At the first Westfield Town Council meeting after the letters became public, Mayor Andy Skabitsky assured the public that the watcher hadn't been heard from in a year and that even though the police hadn't solved the case, their investigation had been exhaustive. Oh, well, this was news to 657's neighbors, most of whom had never heard from the police. They wrote in a letter that they were confounded as to how a thorough investigation can be conducted without talking to all of the neighbors within proximity of the home. Several of them wrote that in a letter to the local paper. Under the glare of the national attention, 
The wheels began to move, as so often happens. Seems that Baron Chambliss, a veteran detective in the Westfield Police, was asked to look at the case. He said the Broadduses were victims and he does not believe that they got the support they needed. Now, Chambliss has since retired, but that's what he said of the initial investigation. Chambliss knew that his colleagues had looked very closely at Michael Langford. According to his brother, Sandy Langford, Michael had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young man. And, well, sometimes he spooked newcomers to the neighborhood when he did strange things, like walk through their backyard or peek into the windows of homes that were being renovated. Oh, that. According to his family and people that knew him, they said that he did odd things like that and they were just mostly unusual neighborly kindnesses. John Schmidt said that every morning Mike goes out to get his newspaper for him. John lives next door to the Langfords. People who had known Michael for decades said that they did not think that he could write the letters. As Chambliss investigated the case, he discovered something surprising. Investigators had eventually conducted a DNA analysis on one of the envelopes and determined that the DNA... Well, that belonged to a woman. Oh, that's right. Chambliss decided to look more closely at Abby Langford, Michael's sister, who worked next door as a real estate agent. Oh, was she upset about missing a commission right next to her? She also worked at the local Lord and Taylor, and Chambliss coordinated with a security guard there to nab her plastic water bottle during a shift. But Chambliss says the DNA sample was not a match. Not long after, the prosecutor's office gave Derek and Maria some unexpected news. They wouldn't say why or how, but they had ruled out the Langfords as suspects. Well, as you can imagine, the Broadduses were stunned. They had recently told the prosecutors that they planned to file civil charges against the Langfords and wondered if the prosecutors were lying to prevent the story from blowing up again. Sandy Langford had said that his family had moved to the boulevard in 1961 and never caused a problem for anybody. Then all of a sudden, this guy starts getting these letters, and then, the next thing you know, everybody's pointing fingers. Left without a suspect, the Broadduses reopened their personal investigation. Now, they were still very shy about sharing too much with their neighbors, who remained in the pool of suspects, but spent an afternoon walking the block with a picture of the watcher's handwritten envelope. They hoped someone might recognize the writing from a Christmas card. But the only notable encounter came when an older man who lived behind 657 said his son joked that the watcher sounded a little bit like him. A neighbor across the street was the CEO of Kroll, the security firm, and the Broadduses hired the company to look for handwriting matches, but they found nothing. They also handed Robert Leonard, a renowned forensic linguist, a former member of the band Shanana, who didn't find any noteworthy overlap when he scoured local online forums for similarities to the Watcher's writing, although he did think the author might watch Game of Thrones. Jon Snow is one of the Watchers on the wall. At one point, Derek persuaded a friend in tech to connect him to a hacker willing to try breaking into Wi-Fi networks in the neighborhood to look for incriminating documents, but doing so turned out to both be illegal and more difficult than the movies made it seem. So they didn't go through with it. Chambliss and the Westfield police were 
also back at square one. The cops asked Andrea Woods for a DNA sample and interviewed her 21-year-old son, who was surprised to find that he suddenly appeared to be a suspect a year after the fact. It was hard to find fresh leads, and the initial police canvas had been so porous that it had missed a significant clue. It seems that around the same time that the Broadduses had received their first letter, another family on the boulevard got a similar note from the watcher. The parents of that family had lived in their house for years, and their kids were grown. So they threw the letter away just as the Woodses had. But after the news broke, one of their children posted about it on Facebook, then deleted the post. When investigators spoke to the family, they confirmed that the letter had been similar to the Broadduses, but its existence only made the case more confusing. There wasn't a whole lot going on, Chambliss said. One night, Chambliss and a partner were sitting in the back of a van parked on the boulevard, watching the house through a pair of binoculars. Around 11 p.m., a car stopped in front of the house long enough for Chambliss to grow suspicious. He said he traced the car to a young woman in a nearby town whose boyfriend lived on the same block as 657. The woman had told Chambliss her boyfriend was into some really dark video games, including, in Chambliss's memory, one in which he was playing a specific character identified as the Watcher. As for the female DNA, Chambliss figured the girlfriend or someone else could have helped. The boyfriend was living elsewhere at the time, but Chambliss says he agreed to come in for an interview on two separate occasions. He never showed up either time. Chambliss didn't have enough evidence to compel him to appear, and with the media attention dying down, he dropped the case and moved on. What you are about to experience is a blur. The Mountain Mysteries, Blurs. Blurs is a series of short, terrifying stories that are allegedly based on actual events. Blurs are only available to Patreon subscribers, and Blurs are released one to three stories at a time on the Mountain Mysteries Patreon site only. Enjoy this sneak peek and become a Patreon subscriber today. The Flight That Never Ends Brought to us by Worcester ST I've been flying for almost 30 years, and the flight attendants won't stop crying. Thirty years ago, I hopped on a late-night flight from New York to Los Angeles. After boarding, I saw I had an entire road to myself. Takeoff passed without any incident, and soon I was stretched out for a nap across the road. I slept for a few hours. I don't know how long, but I woke up to some severe turbulence. I checked my phone to see that it was 4.03 a.m., which I figured gave me about an hour until we landed. When I looked out of my window, I was shocked to see nothing but wide open ocean. My jaw dropped. I mean, there's obviously no ocean between New York and Los Angeles. I hit the button to the call flight attendant and spent the next few minutes racking my brain for a lake that could have possibly been big enough to explain what I was seeing. I jumped when the attendant flipped off the light. She was grinning from ear to ear and tears were pouring down her cheeks. Can I help you, sir? She asked. I froze for a moment at her reaction before deciding just to ask my question. 
Where are we? Why does it look like we're flying over an ocean? She wiped her cheeks to clear the tears, still grinning wildly. Sir, we'll be landing in about an hour. I... Uh... Okay, thank you, I said. After she left, I checked my clock on my phone again. 4.03 a.m. blinked back at me. It hadn't changed. I had to have been waiting with my call light on for at least five minutes. How was it possible that it hadn't changed at all? I opened up my laptop and saw it, too, displayed 4.03 a.m. I pulled out my phone, started to stop watching the app, and spent the next two hours looking back and forth between the clocks, waiting for them to change. They never did. I tapped on the shoulder of an older woman sitting in the row ahead of me. She looked back, an annoyed expression on her face. Yes, she asked. Do you know how long until we land? I asked. She narrowed her eyes. The flight attendant said it would be about an hour. I shook my head in confusion. That flight attendant? We talked almost two hours ago. We should have landed already. She stared at me as if I was crazy. I was going to continue to try to convince her, but I felt a hand on my shoulder. I spun to see a male flight attendant grinning down at me, tears pinging off his cheeks onto my shoulder. Sir, I'm going to have to ask you to calm down or I'll be calling the captain. I told him that wouldn't be necessary and sit back. He removed his hands and stepped away. The flight attendants continued to stop by every few hours offering meals. My stopwatch continued to tick up and is now telling me that I've been on this plane for more than 30 hours. I've explored all of coach and tried to talk to some of these other passengers, but they've all told me that they're expecting to land in an hour or so. Around three hours ago, I tried getting into first class. I made it past the curtain, but was escorted back to the two grinning attendants. Their grip on my arms, it was like iron. Sir, the seatbelt light is on. One said, please remain in your seat with your buckle fastened. We'll be landing in about an hour. I'd just given up hope when a woman came down the aisle dressed in a business suit. She didn't look at me or slow down, but she dropped a piece of paper onto my tray as she made her way to the bathrooms at the back of the plane. I shot a look around before unrolling it. It said, Are you stuck too? I pulled out a pen and wrote, Yes, it's been 30 hours. I folded the scrap of paper up and set it on the tray closest to the aisle. She left the bathroom and picked it up as she passed. It's been 20 minutes since then. I don't know why, but I don't think the flight attendants would like it if they knew we were talking. It doesn't matter. I have to do something. I'll update you with whatever happens next. That was the Mountain Mysteries, Blur 1, The Flight That Never Ends. Only available to the Mountain Mysteries Patreon subscribers on all tiers. Become a Patreon subscriber to the Mountain Mysteries now, and get early access to all episodes of the Mountain Mysteries and the Mountain Mysteries Blurs. Blurs begin release on May 9, 2021 with new blurs released each Sunday, only from the Mountain Mysteries, stay mysterious. Now, we return to the Mountain Mysteries Episode 9, The Mountain Mystery of 657 Boulevard, 
the mountain mystery of The Watcher. Here's your host, Chris Sloan. While the Broadduses had become consumed by tension and anxiety, the rest of Westfield felt the story became little more than a spooky urban legend. It was a house to walk by on Halloween if you were brave enough. No one who had lived in the house before the woods could recall anything unusual, but it was hard for people to imagine that their idyllic neighborhood could be host to something so sinister. A woman who lived nearby said that after the news broke, she and ten or so of her neighbors had gathered in the street to try to figure out who might have sent the letters. Eventually, she said, they came to a consensus that maybe the Broadduses had sent the letters to themselves. The idea was that the Broadduses had suffered buyer's remorse or realized that they could not afford the home and concocted an elaborate scheme to get out of the cell. Or Derek was cooking up some kind of insurance fraud, they thought. Or they were angling for a movie deal. But it is noted that the Broadduses received several offers but turned them down. Lifetime eventually released a movie called The Watcher, despite a cease and desist letter from the Broadduses arguing that the couple in its movie was biracial and the letters were signed, The Raven. Some locals found it significant that over the course of a decade, the Broadduses had upgraded from a $315,000 house to a $770,000 house and then on to a $1.3 million home and refinanced their mortgages. A few weeks after the letters became public, the Westfield Leader published an article in which anonymous neighbors were quoted asking why the Broadduses kept renovating a home that they weren't moving into or questioning whether they had really done that much renovation at all. The Leader even cast doubt on Maria's commitment to her family's safety citing as evidence the fact that she had a public Facebook page with a photo of her kids. The paper did not note that the police had tested Maria's DNA and it did not match. None of the theories made much rational sense. The Broadduses had answers to every question. How does someone go from a $300,000 house to a $1.3 million house in 10 years? Derek told them, it's America, but they weren't speaking publicly and the rumors persisted. One Boulevard resident wrote a letter to the editor arguing that an elaborate scheme is underway to defraud the Woods family for millions of dollars. Chambliss had said that some Westfield cops even bought into the theory. The Broadduses hadn't known how their neighbors would react to news about the Watcher, but they had lived in the area for a decade, and Maria's family had been part of the community for much longer so it was shocking to find themselves accused of being con artists. To Derek, it seemed that some in Westfield preferred the conspiracy theory to considering whether their town might be home to a threat. He said that there was a natural tendency to say, I've lived here for 35 years and nothing's happened to me. He continued by saying that what happened to my family is an affront to their contention that they're safe, that there's no such thing as mental illness in their community. People don't want to believe this could happen in Westfield. While Maria looks back fondly on her childhood, she was born 
A few years after Westfield resident John List infamously murdered his wife, mother, and three children in their home, and remembers a period when she and other kids were warned to look out for a strange van driving around town. Many locals that spoke out did seem more concerned that the national press might ruin Westfield's good name. Some were primarily worried about arson or vandalism, or even whether the Broadduses would maintain the lawn, which they did. Mark Lagrippo, the neighborhood's representative on the Westfield Town Council, said the primary concern he heard from residents was that they were worried about the property value and the stigma of the neighborhood. The Broadduses were suddenly outcast not only from their home, but also from their town. Derek wanted to leave Westville, but Maria insisted on not uprooting her kids. She said that this person has took so much from us, I wouldn't let them take any more. Two years after the Watcher's letters arrived, the Broadduses borrowed money from family members to buy a second home in Westfield, using an LLC to keep the location private. But staying in town was stressful. The first time Maria let her daughters go to the pool with friends, she stared at the tracker on her daughter's iPhone the whole time. One of their kids was in a language arts class when the teacher led a debate about whether the family in a book they were reading should move to Westfield. The class thought they should, in part of because of how safe it was. Afterwards, one of the kids told the Broadus' child, My parents told me that no matter what your family says, Westfield is safe. Meanwhile, the Broadduses still had to figure out what to do with 657 Boulevard. Their lawsuit was pending but seemed unlikely to be successful. Some states require sellers to disclose transient social conditions, like murders or possible hauntings. In a 1991 case involving an alleged ghost-filled house, a New York court ruled that, as a matter of law, the house is haunted. But New Jersey had no such regulation and a judge later dismissed the lawsuit. The Woodses, through their attorney, declined to comment for this story. Derek looked into renting the house to the Department of Veterans Affairs and also a company that runs halfway homes. In the spring of 2016, the Broadus family put 657 back on the market, hoping it might garner more interest given how many people had reacted to the letters by saying they would have ignored them and just moved in. Well, the Broadduses held a well-attended open house, after which Derek and Maria spent hours researching every person who signed in and comparing their handwriting to the watchers. But each time a potential buyer expressed interest and met with a Broaddus lawyer to read the letters, they all backed out. Feeling as if they were out of choices, the Broadduses' real estate lawyer proposed an idea. Sell the house to a developer who could tear it down and split the property into two sellable homes. They thought they could get a million dollars for the lot. Subdivisions like this had become common in Westfield, much to the irritation of the locals, and 657 was one of the neighborhood's largest lots. Well, even so, dividing it would require the Westfield Planning Board to grant an exception. The two smaller lots would be 67.4 and 67.6 feet wide, just shy of the mandated 70 feet. When the proposal was publicly announced, Westfield's Facebook groups lit up. Some expressed sympathy for the Broadduses, while others pointed out that real estate is always a gamble. 
Another faction was convinced that this was the culmination of a long con. One local woman said out of this whole scam artist story, there ends up being nothing more disturbing than this move. A man who coached the Broadus' son in football wrote, they were in over their heads from day one. The hearing lasted four hours, and that evening, at 11.30 p.m., the board unanimously rejected the proposal. A New Jersey judge later denied the Broadus' appeal of the decision. Derek and Maria were distraught. Even if the plan had gone through, it would have only staunched their financial bleeding. On top of the mortgage and renovations, they have paid around $100,000 in Westfield property taxes. The town denied the request for relief and spent at least that amount investigating the watcher and exploring ways to deal with the home, not to mention cleaning the gutters. The Broadduses recognized that 657 Boulevard was a beautiful house on a beautiful street that was worth maintaining, but they were surprised that their neighbors didn't see the uniqueness of this situation. Not long after the planning board's decision, the Broadduses got some good news. A family with grown children and two big dogs had agreed to rent 657 Boulevard. The renter told the Star-Ledger that he wasn't worried about the watcher, although he did have a clause in the lease that let him out in case of another litter. Two weeks later, Derek went to 657 to deal with squirrels that had taken up residence in the roof. The renter handed him an envelope that had just arrived. Violent winds, bitter cold, the vile and spiteful Derek, and his wench of a wife, Maria. This letter, two and a half years after the Watcher appeared, came out of nowhere. It was dated February 13th, the day the Broadduses gave depositions in their lawsuit against the Woodses. The letter read, You wonder who the Watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you've even spoken to me. One of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the Watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. The letter was less stylish and more wrathful than the others, and it seemed the writer had been closely following the story. They had seen the media coverage and Derek's surreptitious investigatory efforts. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. And the attempt to tear down the house. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers at the Boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. The letter read, All hail the Watcher. The renter was mentioned. He was spooked but agreed to stay if the Broadduses installed cameras around the house. And the letter indicated revenge could come in many forms. Maybe a car accident. Maybe a fire. Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet, 
loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. Maria said it was like they were back at the very beginning. But it also meant fresh evidence that might help invigorate the investigation. Derek took the letter to police headquarters, where a detective looked at a neighborhood map and traced the circle around the house 300 yards in diameter, suggesting the watcher might be somewhere in there. Derek drew one much closer. He said in his view, it was one of ten houses in the world. Now, hindsight made Derek and Maria wonder if they should have sold the house at a loss early on, and 657 Boulevard conjured too much emotional pain for them to ever consider moving in. They had hoped that a few years of renting the place without incident would help them sell it. The prosecutor's office was continuing with its investigation, but the Broadduses knew that it was very unlikely that the watcher would ever be caught, and that the legal punishment would likely be minimal. At this point in the story, we discovered that the watcher was no longer the only person sending anonymous letters in Westfield. The previous Christmas Eve, several families received an envelope in their mailboxes. They had been delivered by hand to the homes of people who had been the most vocal in criticizing the Broadduses online. One of them, who lived a few blocks down on Boulevard, had written on Facebook, I wish we could just go back to the days of tar and feathers. I have just the couple in mind. Another family who got the letter said that it was weirdly poetic, as the watcher had been, and that it accused the families of speculating inaccurately about the Broadduses. It included several stories about recent acts of domestic terrorism in which signs of brewing mental illness had gone unnoticed. The typed letters were all signed, Friends of the Broaddus Family. The letter writer had clearly been infected, not only with the watcher's penchant for anonymous notes, but also in a simmering resentment, one that had snaked its way through Westfield, making enemies of neighbors. The people who received the letters didn't know who sent them, but the tone had a familiar ring to it. When Derek Broaddus was asked whether or not he had written those letters, he paused for a moment and said that he did. He wasn't proud of it. He hadn't even told his wife and said they were the only anonymous letters he'd written. But he had felt driven to his wit's end, fed up with watching silently as people threw accusations at his family based on practically nothing. One of the people who received the letter had said that they never met the Broadduses and had no interest in doing so. The Watcher had been obsessed with 657 Boulevard, and Derek, in turn, had become obsessed with the Watcher and everything the letters had set in motion. Derek said it was like a cancer, and that they think about it every day. Sitting at the Westfield train station, Derek handed someone his phone so he could read the fourth letter. It read, You are despised by the house, and the Watcher won. The Watcher, or the identity of the Watcher, to this day has not been discovered. Don't forget to join us on our Facebook page, The Mountain Mysteries, live every Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
We'll talk about these and more cases. And please, rate us five stars and subscribe to The Mountain Mysteries. Patreon members, beginning soon, will now get access to blurs. Blurs are short stories based on real-life events, and it's only available for the Mountain Mysteries Patreon subscribers. We hope that you'll join us. Stay mysterious. If you enjoy the Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support the Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.